Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, kids across the United States could be getting too much lead in the water they drink at school. Kids spend a lot of time, most of their day, in school settings, and it's important for them to have safe water to drink. But there are no uh, federal policies that require schools to test drinking water for lead. In this week's episode, we'll speak to one of the authors of a new report that found many schools in the U.S. are not testing their water for lead. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. The traditional public health mantra is that there is no safe level of lead for kids. But a new report from the Harvard Prevention Research Center on Nutrition and Physical Activity finds that many kids in the U.S. could be exposed to lead through the water they drink at school. A big reason why is that many schools in America simply don't test their drinking water for lead. And among states that do have testing programs, there are a wide variation in what's being tested, the data that's being recorded, and even at what levels of lead schools are required to take action. And most schools, nearly 90%, are not required by the federal government to test the drinking water for lead because they obtain water from public water systems. The Environmental Protection Agency regulates public water systems to limit the levels of lead within the water system overall. However, lead can also enter drinking water when plumbing materials or fixtures inside a school building contain lead and the water flows through them. A smaller percentage of schools are subject to federal requirements for conducting water testing because they provide water for students via sources such as a well or cistern and operate as their own public water system. The team from the Harvard Prevention Research Center analyzed data from 24 states that have lead testing programs in schools plus Washington, D.C. Only 12 of the states had usable results. Among those, 12% of all water samples tested had higher than recommended lead levels, and 44% of schools tested had one or more samples with higher than recommended levels. In this week's episode, we're talking about the report and its findings with Angie Craddock, who is the Deputy Director of the Prevention Research Center. Before we jump into our conversation, since this is such a complex topic, I do want to tell you that we'll have a lot of great information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. You can read the full report from the Harvard Prevention Research Center. There's also an in-depth review of lead testing policies from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, and information about the guidance that EPA currently provides to schools regarding lead testing. But now let's jump into my conversation with Angie Craddock. I think most of our listeners probably broadly know that lead is harmful, but can you explain why we should be so concerned about lead in school drinking water? What are some of the potential health effects that that we need to be concerned about there? Well, I would say that federal officials suggest that there is no safe level of lead, and water is just one way that lead can get into the bodies of children, and it has lots of detrimental impacts on on health um, and cognition as well. And so I know kind of on the flip side of that and looking at access to drinking water in schools, I mean, water, I think, is so crucial to health. We all know that. But particularly for kids, particularly for young kids, why is access to water such a particular big area of concern? Well, I think kids spend a lot of time most of their day in school settings, especially kids of school age or of preschool age. And it's important for them to have safe water to drink. And the water needs uh, to be uh, at a level that is uh, important for health and helps them avoid consumption of other drinks that might not be as uh, supportive of health outcomes. I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later on. But And when it comes to lead in drinking water supplies, especially at schools, I mean, where is most of that lead coming from? Is it just from old pipes? Are there kind of other factors at play? 
lead can enter the drinking water supply in many ways. It can come from the source, uh, the community water system. It can also come from the pipes or other fixtures that are inside or outside of schools. This recent project that you completed, you were looking at state efforts to test drinking water for lead. Um, So with this project, what states did you study and what I guess, what were you particularly examining with regard to those states and those lead testing programs? Sure. Well, uh, we've talked a little bit about the fact that kids spend most of their time in school, but there are no uh, federal policies that require schools to test drinking water for lead. Um, There are guidelines that uh, the EPA has put together for schools that voluntarily choose to test the drinking water sources in the school. And actually, there's just new guidance that came out um, from the EPA that uh, I think it was in October of, of 2018. So brand new guidance with lots of different resources for, for schools that are interested in implementing those testing programs. But only schools that are considered wh- what they call their uh, community water system or their own water supplier are required to test drinking water for lead. So it's kind of up to the states to initiate policies and programs that can help support the activities of individual schools to do that testing. So we were interested in looking at how states are approaching programs or, or policies or, or implementing those programs and policies at the local level, so within schools, to test drinking water for lead so that we could kind of understand you know, where things were and uh, the lay of the land and help inform future actions to implement those, those programs and policies. Um, as we talked about, you know, not many states have these types of initiatives that are really working to protect kids from uh, lead in school drinking water. So we wanted to identify strategies that might be useful to inform future efforts in that. Um, so we contacted states. Um, uh, well, first we did, you know, a literature search to try to identify um, what state programs and policies were out there using some academic databases and, and other resources that we had at our disposal. And then we um, contacted each state um, health agency um, Usually the Department of Environment would be another likely agency that would oversee such a program, or the Department of Education to identify other states that might not have formal uh, legislative policies but but might have uh, programs that they were working on. And then uh, once we identified those, there are 24 states in the District of Columbia as of the end of our study, so February uh, 2018, so about one year ago. Um, who had initiated a program or a policy to test school drinking water for lead. And um, they definitely had some variation in how they decided or um, guided schools in implementing the lead testing program. Um, a wide variety and a variety of different things, I guess, um, what schools were, were um, asked to participate. So whether it was a voluntary program or, or a mandatory program, that was one key thing. How they collected the drinking water samples themselves, how they stored the data, um, the activities that they used to communicate the results of what they found. Um, oh, you know, a wide variety of, of different things that impacted uh, the information that came from that program. And what did you find with regards to, from those testing programs, the, the schools that actually did have um, positive test results for lead in their drinking water supplies? So, um, as I mentioned, schools used a, a variety of mechanisms for collecting uh, the information on the lead content of drinking water, of um, storing those data as well. 
and um, pulling to them together in different databases. So of the 24 states in the District of Columbia, there were 12 states that stored data in a central location um, that would identify the, the school name and source of um, the test results. And um, in eight of those states, they actually reported also the concentration, so the lead concentration level that was found in, in the test that was done. Um, one thing I guess I should maybe back up and say that one of the other key areas that states varied in the implementation of their program was the lead concentration that they defined as an action level. So that's the concentration of lead and the sample of water that's taken from the tap that triggers an action. So whatever that action was defined as um, was specific to the state, but it could be you know, shutting off the tap or um, doing some short-term remediation efforts that could lower the concentration of lead in the drinking water for students. So some uh, places used, uh, say, five parts per billion, which is um, what is used for bottled drinking water here in the United States. And others used um, other levels, like 15 parts per billion or, or 20 parts per billion. It really depended on the state. So we were able to look at um, the exceedance, I guess, of those action levels that were defined by the state in, in 12 states. So it, it's interesting because it's, I mean, an elevated lead level is concerning in its own right, but what it seems like it's almost more concerning is that there's, there, there's no kind of agreement on measurement. You can't even, it seems like you can't even accurately measure what the problem might be. That is true. There's no current health-based standard for uh, lead in drinking water. Um, so the FDA has a standard for bottled water, um, but there is no um, health-based standard for, for lead in drinking water, although the EPA is working on um, deriving one and is doing research on that, and hopefully that information will be available soon. I, I um, have heard that it's supposed to be sometime this spring. And so when it comes to, because you, you just talked about how there's all this variability between states, I mean, when it comes to, I guess, kind of the, the, the whole picture of the system is in place, you know, retaining data, um, are there states that are performing particularly well that you think could be models for other states? To kind of t to learn from and hopefully create some sort of standardization? Well, I will say that states were doing things very differently, and we didn't look in this study. We were just characterizing what they were doing. We did not look to see the outcomes or the impact of the state programs in the lead content level that, that was in the water over time. So there's no evaluation component of the success or lack of success of different programs. So um, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I think it is interesting um, to learn from what states are doing uh, because the context of states is very different. Um, even the agency that was the agency that was kind of in charge of overseeing and implementing the program was different across the states. And, you know, that really can make a difference within the state government context. Um, as well. So it kind of gives states somewhat of a level of flexibility or learning from other programs about how they're doing things in a way that might work for them. Is one of the goals from your perspective would be to create kind of a broad federal testing standard for schools? And how realistic is that to actually implement? Well, I, I think the goal of our work um, was to I identify what states were doing to inform future state action. Um, I think that 
with the revised three T's, the, that guidance that's given to individual schools to conduct their testing um, was expanded and the resources and technical guidance that were given to them was also expanded with that. At the same time, the EPA, which I think is a, a great, great thing to know, is that the EPA also initiated a grant program that would support states in conducting that testing because not all states were able to provide funding for collecting the water and um, the labs for conducting the testing and for training the school personnel or other people that, that needed to go about doing those activities or to figure out um, funding in, in the case that exceedance, like uh, you know, elevated levels of lead were found in the water um, to pay for any remediation or, or things that would need to be done to um, remove the lead from the drinking water in schools. Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask that about kind of some of the barriers. I mean, is funding really the biggest barrier here or are there other kind of barriers at that, at the state level to, you know, kind of improving these testing programs? Unless a state has a policy or a program that gives guidance and helps um, to organize a program, it's completely voluntary that schools would conduct any testing. And um, there was also a recent GAO report that might be of interest to listeners um, that um, was done looking nationally at some of those barriers and some of the costs that schools reported um, and school districts reported that they incurred in doing that testing as well. Um, I think, you know, everyone's, uh, schools are strapped for money. Their um, primary goal is to educate students and they don't often have set aside resources for um, doing things that might be optional for them, such as testing school drinking water. So it's nice to have the overarching policy that gives them the guidance, helps them with the resources, and and makes that just an easier process. I'm guessing at the school level, they recognize that lead is something that everyone should be concerned about. Like, I mean, it, it, I mean that's not an issue. I mean, it's not that there's peop- schools are saying this isn't an issue. It's more this is an issue, but we have all of these other priorities and we only have limited resources. I mean, is that kind of what's going on there? That it's it's not a it's not a lack of recognition of the problem of lead and water. It's more just the ability to actually address the problem. I would say it might differ by place because I think there are some districts and some states that are really tackling this issue and they have a you know a set program. They have um, technical assistance in place. They have funding. Um, you know, they're they are really set up and structured to, um, I guess, help schools along with this issue. And then there are other states where it might be um, a little bit less consistent. Or I guess there are many states <laughs> that it's it's very much less consistent. In um, in those states, we don't really know what's happening or um, you know what the lay of the land is at the school level. So we were talking before the interview about kind of some of your other related work on just generally promoting, for example, water consumption instead of sugary sweetened beverage consumption. So, so how does this work you're doing on the kind of the, the safety and the, you know of school drinking water kind of fit into that that broader kind of public health goal of getting students to choose, you know, to go to the bubbler in the school instead of getting a you know a soda from the vending machine? So how does kind of all of that? How does this work kind of fit into that larger kind of public health goal? Well, sugary drinks are the largest source of sugar in our American diet. And, um, you know, this is true for kids as well. Um, You know, so one of the goals um, for us to make sure that kids grow up in a healthy weight is to limit sugar 
consumption, especially that um, through sugary drink consumption. And the obvious um, alternative to that is to is to promote water as a healthy hydration source. And so in order to do that, we want to make sure you know, that water is safe to drink and that it's appealing and available to students um, and children in other settings as well. And then we also want to promote uh, consumption and intake among kids. So um, we have done several studies in school settings and out-of-school time settings and, and other um, places to kind of think about interventions or activities that we can do to support that. So those that kind of dual goal of reducing sugary drink consumption and um, using water as the first for thirst uh, for hydration for kids. And um, so over time, I guess we've looked at um, the impact of policy initiatives at the district level, say in Boston, to limit um, the sale of sugary drinks in uh, schools, which uh, which was, I think, implemented in 2004 and 2005. Um, so prior to the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act that also, and Smart Snacks um, rules that were federal, um, Boston initiated some, I, I think, quite innovative policies to help promote um, healthier hydration, so um, limiting access to sugary drinks in school settings. And we looked at the impact on, of that and was successful in, in uh, reducing sugary drink consumption among, we measured it among high school students over time. Um, so obviously when they're not drinking sugary drinks, what are they drinking? So we've also done studies uh, that looked at access to water in cafeteria settings and other school areas across the state of Massachusetts. Um, and we've also looked at initiatives that can promote water when it's available. So when there's water in the cafeteria or in other settings, what can we do to promote that? And um, researchers such as Erica Kenny and and others on the team have published uh, studies looking at um, grab a cup, fill it up. So how you can provide cups and promotion um, around water sources and it'll in increase consumption of water and actually at the same time um, limit uh, the amount of sugary drinks that kids are bringing in to consume during mealtimes as well. I imagine at the end of the day, it's you're promoting you should drink, you should choose water, but you also then you have to ensure that the water they're drinking <laughs> isn't kind of another source of health harm. Right, yeah, right. it's safe for them. Another study that we've done has been uh, conducted in out-of-school time programs, which often operate in school buildings and during the hours before or after school. And as one of the strategies that, that we were focusing on, again, was this kind of switching away from sugary beverages mm -hmm. to ensuring that water is provided as an option for snacks in the after-school time. And in that um, intervention, we had to be pretty flexible because not all schools had plumbed drinking water sources that were safe in the schools that we were working in. Um, they had been turned off because they had been found to exceed uh, the uh, action level of lead. So um, they were using other sources such as bottled water drinking sources and, and other ways of, of accessing drinking water. So, you know, Sometimes we have to be flexible, but I think um, those initiatives that the states are 
undertaking to test drinking water for lead and then also to provide funding to schools to be able to remediate and address those exceedances and ensure that uh, the water is safe and available to kids and in during the school day and in the times after school as well these are all really important um, activities and I hope that our work more you know here looking at the state programs will encourage other states to take this on because um, it is a big issue it's an issue for kids in school in programs after school, in um, the use of schools as community settings, um, and the hours outside of, um, you know, the regular school day as well for for everyone and for staff too. Yeah, well, I, I, as you're talking, I'm, I, that idea of kind of you know the school beyond school hours. I mean, especially in a in a low income area, students might be in school early for breakfast. So, is that also a factor here that you know, there's potentially kind of this you know. Uh, double hit for, you know, you might be a school in a low-income area, so you have less funding, less resources for lead testing at the same time. Those are the students who might actually be spending the most time in those in those school buildings. Is that a concern at all? Kind of disparities um, in terms of potential uh, or, or disparities in kind of testing programs? So um, we're looking into that with, with some of our data. I don't have specific <laughs> specific findings to discuss, but um, I think there are big differences in the amount of time that some students spend in the school building and the uh, amount of meals and other uh, nutritional sources that they consume while they're there. So um, that's definitely, I, I think that's a, a valid um, question and issue to address. And we hope to look into that a little bit more. If, if there are parents listening to this who are kind of wondering about their own schools, aside from reading the report, which we'll have a link to, which is really, really detailed and definitely worth reading, but are, are there any other things that you would recommend that, that parents do? I mean, should they talk to school administrators? Should they, I mean, what, if parents are concerned about this, is there anything they could do to get involved? I think the first thing would be to talk to your principal. Uh, it may be that your school has conducted uh, water quality testing and um, maybe it just the information hasn't gotten out there to everyone or, um, you know, ha- hasn't um, been presented in a way that reaches all parents, for example. So that, that would be the first question. Um, another source of um, helping to address both water access and, and water quality within schools is through participation in school wellness councils. So parents um, can choose to join. Um, Most schools, I hope all schools, have what they call a school wellness council, which um, is a a body that um, sometimes is comprised of people within the administration of the school, parents, and other folks that might be interested in supporting the health of students. And that's another way that parents can get involved. Um, often all districts are, are required to have what's called a district wellness policy. Um, parents can uh, encourage school districts uh, as part of that work within the School Wellness Council to institute policies that address school water quality and water access. Those are all easy, not, not necessarily always easy ways, but they are uh, ways that parents can get involved and uh, become more informed about that. You've said that this study was really kind of about kind of reporting on what, you know, what states are currently doing, almost like a state of the states in this regard. So what what would be some of the, the kind of next steps? What are you looking at next from a research uh, perspective? What are kind of your next projects on the horizon to kind of take this work, work a step further? 
you talked about a couple of them already. So one, um, since we did the report, three additional states have initiated programs, and uh, we're really excited about that. Uh, but it also means that the, the field and the work that's happening at the local level is changing all the time. So it's somewhat of a moving target. So we're hoping to continue to do this work to understand what states are doing and what they're finding and then use that information to identify, as you were, you were talking about, maybe some best practices or um, uh, ideas about how water quality might vary by demographic characteristics of schools or locales and um, how that might inform future testing initiatives. That was my conversation with Angie Craddock about lead and school drinking water supplies. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you want to dig deeper into this issue, we'll have plenty of resources on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Spotify. 